Welcome to Arcade Attack. A retro gaming podcast for up to four players. Hello and welcome to part two of the Simon Phipps Arcade Attack podcast. In this particular pod, Simon talks about his great work on many Harry Potter titles, the Burnout games, GoldenEye for the Wii, games that he worked on but were never released, and his latest game, Dangerous Driving. So sit back and enjoy this pod. So anyway, I sat down with Kelvin, who was our art director, and we basically went through all of the books that were available at that point, yeah. all of our notes from J.K. Rowling, um, through all the DVDs, and found every instance of some feature of Hogwarts. So if you're walking out of Transfiguration, what the doorway looks like and what courtyard it goes into. Yeah. And also, we had access to the um, blueprints of the various different versions of the screen-used model, because that changes from uh, film to film. Yeah. And so with Kelvin, we put, pieced together this huge jigsaw of imagery from the movies, pieces from the model, plus the fiction. So in the end, we actually had a blueprint for Hogwarts, uh, looked as close to the scenes in the movie that we could get, but still respected J.K. Rowling's original um, fiction. So all of the things worked. Good. Uh, which was quite an undertaking. It was something I was very, very uh, happy with because it was that sort of thing of going back to Order of the Phoenix um, after having kind of taken a little vocation with sort of their stuff um, on uh, Goblet of Fire. Um, it was an opportunity to finally turn around and go, here's your definitive Hogwarts. Mm. It looks like the ones that you've seen in the movies. Based on the uh, and so, yes, we, uh, we, did, we did that. And that was probably the last thing I did on Harry Potter. I mean, you, did, you know, that is amazing. They have four massive games and uh, you can look back with a lot of, res- a lot of uh, like respect and a lot of pride, I bet. No, it was it was it was a terrific experience, and the nice thing was actually was um, what happened. Basically, I got a phone call uh, from a friend, Alex Ward, over at Criterion, who'd been bought by uh, yeah. um, EA, and I'd known Alex from way back in the acclaimed years when we were working on Shadowman. And he was like, "I bet you're about sick of playing with ones. Do you want to go and drive some cars and smash stuff up?" And I was like, <laughs> "Yeah." So that was my sort of jumping off point um, from. Uh, Order of the Phoenix. Um, but no, it was a terrific uh, thing to have been involved in because you were kind of working on it at the, at the time when it was massive, you yeah. know, sort of thing and, and huge sort of pop culture phenomena that it was. Um, and say the nice thing was, was that I sort of finished at a time when I could kind of step away. And obviously, 
working with it, you become a real fan and an absolute Potter nerd. I can mm. remember some stuff, but I can't remember it now. It's like kind of uh, cramming for my A-levels. It's mm. dropped away into, into the thing, and some of it comes back. But the nice thing was to sort of step away and there still be, I think it was at least the final book I hadn't read by the time I, I ended uh, working on Potter. Yeah. So the nice thing was was to kind of enjoy the final book, not as a book has come in, because literally what happened with all the books subsequent to Prison of Azkaban all the way through to book six, I think it was. Basically, uh, when it came in, down to Asda, the, uh, the morning after, I wasn't going to do the midnight, <laughs> but that weekend, sitting there and read it over the weekend with a notebook, taking it apart. Oh, this is in there. That's mm-hmm. mentioned. This is mentioned. Kind of, even if you haven't got to that book, there may be some detail that you kind of can bring in. Actually, it was really nice to end on the final book as a fan, just kind of close the chapter away from that and sort of step away yeah. and go play with cars and stuff like that over at Criterion. Good stuff. Good stuff. Um, before well, I'll ask you a few more sort of random questions, but one sort of more specific game, uh, GoldenEye 007. Um, you made that for the Wii. Did you, mm-hmm. did you use the N64 classic GoldenEye's inspiration? Did you use that or did you try and develop your own style? I mean, that was another massive, huge franchise oh, you worked on. Well, yeah, this, this was a, a, quite a surprise because I, I got, um, it was uh, end of 2008 going into 2009 and I'd been working away from home for ooh, since 94, so about 15 years I've mostly been working away from home, kind of basically, we've got a base here in Nottingham, and it was that sort of thing of, I'll go away, work away, live away during the week, and then come back and uh, have weekends at home and stuff, which worked for us because knowing how volatile the games industry could be, and I've seen so many folks up and move to a a town to work for somewhere for like two or three years, and then go under and then have to move. It was like, look, our families are all here, our kids are here, you know, I'll go off and do the crunch. I can work late nights and stuff like that kind of thing and then come home and really, when I'm at home, be centred. Mm. But so it got to around about 2008 and I thought, I've been doing this for a very, very long time and I've been working at Criterion uh, after Potter for a number of years and I kind of like thought, right, I think I'm going to see if I can make 2009 uh, time to, to head home. Yeah. Um, before I did, I just uh, sent uh, Hugh at uh, Eurocom, who I hadn't done for many, many years, uh, and I said, oh, I'm, I'm thinking in back. He's like, "Oh yeah," <laughs> like this is quite sweet because Eurocom just down the road on, uh, on, on Ashbourne Road, and offered me uh, offered me a job. So I was like, "Oh, that's very very nice." I get to come home, sleep in my own bed, and stuff like that. So say goodbye to Alex and Fiona at uh, Criteria, and they were absolutely adorable about it, and yeah. said, "You know, we really appreciate it." Away, uh, so I came back and I was like, "Okay, what I'm working on? Can't tell you till you start." <laughs> okay, Christmas and all this kind of thing. Just after January, walked in. I'm sort of, I'd said, you know, I'm happy to just, you know, work on whatever. I know you're doing a lot of sort of kids games and this, that, and the other. So, so, oh, you know, as long as I'm working in the games industry, creating stuff, I'm happy to clean the toilet, do some junior, <laughs> whatever you want. Yeah. Would you like me to, to uh, run a project? Uh, what do you reckon? Uh, remaking Goldeneye for the week. I mean, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that was the start of 18 months of probably the hardest project I've ever, ever worked on. Oh, wow. Or at least probably uh, since leaving court. Yeah. It was absolutely 18 months of the most intense work I've ever done. Um, it is a, a high high bar, and um, 
my producer there, Mike Robinson, uh, absolute star through it. But uh, and one of the things that we knew going into it completely was if we don't do this right, there will be burning crosses out on the law. Yeah, you know, sort of thing. And that was that was kind of our, our saying for, for for the eighteen months. So what we had to do was to try and take the essence of the original Golden Eye and make it uh, make it work. So what we did was. Uh, we actually went back to um, a movie and broke down the storyline for for the movie because the movie storyline is slightly different from that one that's in the game. Yeah. We thought, right, we're going to book in with the Bond guys. Let's go back to the original thing and then broke it down in that way and constructed it. And one of the things that we were very, very keen upon uh, trying to get working was to have situation where you could go through the game uh, in a stealth manner because Bond is, you know, is of all things stealthy and that was one of the things that kind of was really um, unique about the original GoldenEye that was kind of like, apart from all the fact that it, it kind of made a, a stamp on what a first-person shooter could be, mm. that whole aspect of sneaking up and firing your silencer and taking guys down so we were like, yeah, we need to kind of do this kind of restraint thing and then the other aspect that we talked about and really pitched with the idea that we would, unless it was in a cutscene, it was going to be through Bond's eyes. Because again, in the original GoldenEye, you looked at who you watched for the board screen and everything was through there. And so what we had was we had a um, the idea of, you know, kind of like Bond taking down, if you looked at Daniel Craig in um, uh, Casino Royale, very hands-on, all of that kind of um Craig Mugabe, uh, Israeli special forces, physicality and stuff like that. It's like, yeah, I can sneak up behind him, I stick him over a rail and everything, and you yeah. see it very visceral, very physical with his, uh, big beefy hands coming into the, into the shot. And that was received really, really well. And, uh, what we had was, uh, we had a period of a few months to actually, um, prove out that we could do it. Yeah. So we had, um, Great, uh, great team, really talented bunch of, uh, at Eurocom. Um, and, uh, what they had was they had their own engine that they had, uh, worked on from the days of, I guess, sort of 40 weeks or whatever. It had been used on Potter and been involved. Mm. And probably actually the closest thing I've seen to the likes of sort of Unity and Unreal up until that, you know, sort of like, um, until that point, it was very, very, very powerful. Had its own special way of doing things, but there was an awful lot of power in there. And so actually the guys all jumped in and we created a, a demo, uh, which actually featured, uh, two sections, one which was escaping the prison cells in the, um, Russian facility that prior to the, uh, tank, uh, chase in, um, uh, in GoldenEye and the other one, which is going to Sevenaya, the big radio telescope. Yes. Gets blown, uh, blown up. Yeah. Because actually, yes, remembering it now, the, the plot of the GoldenEye game sort of diverted from, from that. And we kind of thought, right, we'll go back to the movie and follow that line. Um, so we did that, and it was one of those kind of things that predicated on whether we could, uh, whether we could prove ourselves with that one on, on to the next phase. And, uh, yeah, we did it, and Activision were very, very happy. And we, uh, cranked on then, and it was a, a just an absolute, um, the, the, the pressure and the stress that was on every member of the team to get it right was bigger than it ever was on Potter, bigger than anything else I've ever worked on. 
Yeah. Um, I'm really got you know kind of thing. We spent the first year um, uh, piling through. I had the biggest design team I've ever I've ever had to manage, and that was kind of oh, it was like one guy for every level, and everybody. Oh, it, was, it was huge. Um, we did work with um, the uh, um, company that uh, owns the uh, bond license. Get the the actual technical name of it. It escapes my head now, but we did actually have a few meetings down in London uh, with the uh, guys down there to take them through our ideas and everything mm. like that. Um, we had the privilege of motion capturing with a couple of um, amazing stuntmen. There's a guy who um, stunt doubles for um, Daniel Craig. He's a, the guy that sort of did a lot of the stuff um, on the building side chase and, uh, and stuff in, in Casino Royale. Um, he was, uh, he did all our motion capture along with a local chap, Damien, who, uh, said it was like a parkour athlete gymnast who you'll have seen, um, start of Hellboy doing the prints yeah. in Hellboy doing amazing kind of stuff. So we had those two guys for a couple of days doing the, uh, uh, motion capture suits actually at Eurocom's own motion, motion, in-house motion capture studio. And what was quite amazing about that, they were both terrific guys, but one of the things that we needed to do was to motion capture all these takedown maneuvers where, you know, they grab him, throw him to the mm. ground and all this kind of stuff. What was fantastic about watching those two guys work was that they knew what they were doing and it was almost like psychically they knew how each other was going to be able to um, pretend fight off one another and mm. throw each other around without hurting one another. Except for the very, very first take, uh, Bond's uh, double, oh, I wish I could remember the guy's name, um, leapt in, grabs hold of Damien, throws him down onto the, fl- uh, onto the floor, and you're like, wow, yeah, yeah. like this. <laughs> and uh, uh, Damien gets up, uh, kind of thing, and big split above the top oh. of his eye. It's like, what's going on here? Like this kind of thing. <laughs> go patch him up, and these guys are going to go, anyway, we rolled the tape back, and what happened was we actually got um, prop foam guns to use as props and they were all marked up so he got like a, a, I think it was a kind of a Kalashnikov yeah. it's a foam rubber one but with a um, um, a fairly rigid sort of rod underneath the idea being that those could be thrown around, you're not going to hurt yourself yeah. and they're all marked up so they're in the motion capture. So we rolled back the uh, the tape and basically as Damien hit the ground, the butt of the uh, the stock of the, uh, of the uh, AK hit the ground first and then swung the barrel straight up, bang, straight in the forehead. We're like, oh, this nice. is the start of two days, and we've already broken one of them. <laughs> and bless them, they carried on and just did all of these amazing maneuvers. And then when the animators had taken that day to clean it up, some of the, the sort of first-person mm. sort of takedowns that we got through it was uh, were, were tremendous. Um, but uh, yeah, so yeah, it was it was just non-stop because one of the things we were doing was uh, not only were the team having to develop uh, the single-player experience, which the bar being set by Call of Duty, etc., yeah. was there on a machine that wasn't the most powerful for its time, plus also doing a uh, multiplayer game that would work uh, split-screen and uh, online as well. Yeah. So there was a heck of a lot to do. Um, we were dealing with the Wii Remote, um, Mike took on um, all of the work with the weapons handling, uh, and stuff and spent probably the best part of 17 of the 18 months just totally iterating 
um, the uh, targeting, handling of the remote, making sure that every animation felt satisfying, every reload, every everything had the weight and the sort of presence that you need to. Um, and um, as we got further and further on, towards the end of the first year, Modern Warfare 2 hit. Yeah. That was like dropping a nuclear bomb yeah. amongst them. Because, of course, we've been building to have a very stealth-based mm. kind of thing, something where a firefight can kick off and you can finish it, but we were sort of like kind of pitching and one of our kind of... Uh, of uh, statements through it was to do the thinking man's bond. So the idea being that you had this kind of thing where Bond was using the environment, you, you know, using his stealth and all this kind of stuff. And that was the thing that uh, um, uh, the, uh, the guy, guys down in the film guys were really responsive to. Mm. Once Modern Warfare 2 hit, the pressure to, can you make something that's a Modern Warfare 2 beta? Oh. It's got to be like this. So all of a sudden, that meant that the scrutiny on the levels, we had to go back all over them again and then amp up all of the spectacle and the set pieces and you know where it had been kind of uh, measured it was like where can we get another firefighting we actually had a, had a sort of running joke about the amount of the exploding helicopter quotient because the 50 cent game had been out there and every boss at the end of the 50 cent game had been usually a, a, a gunship it's <laughs> like we got we got more helicopters than fitting um <laughs> I had a, another designer, Mike Parker, come on and help me because trying to manage all of those uh, levels all at the same time, giving feedback on them as they're accelerating towards uh, the final was like almost just possible uh, because you're just going in with that kind of thing. And then so had uh, um, wanted to also get the tank section in there as being a kind of vehicle section. Um, so what I ended up doing was taking that on um, and ended up sort of like hands-on designing those uh, bits and pieces whilst I was feeding back. Oh, it was just absolutely monster. Uh, and um, from January, coming back after Christmas, all the way through till September, we were working seven days a week, nine till nine. Wow. <laughs> yep. Just yeah. non-stop. Uh, I've never eaten so many desk curries and... <laughs> It, would, it was just an absolute monster. I would say we were pleased with what we did at the end. Um, mm. We also actually had um, Rob, one of the pr uh, production designers, on, on uh, was a production designer that had worked with them on sort of the Bond films come on board. And what he did was, as we were doing it, um, suggested some changes to the, the look of things. So. In, in the original GoldenEye uh, movie and the game set at the Arecibo radio telescope, mm. what they decided was they wanted to sort of like bring it up to date a little bit. So it was like, okay, let's let's put this final um, thing at a big solar farm where you've got a huge tower and stuff like that. So there were a lot of those kind of things uh, came in. Um, oh, the section with the Russian gangster this is going back now because it's a few years it's about eight years ago um that was swapped out to be a section in dubai if i remember it's an arms fair and there were a few other bits and pieces like that then um a movie scriptwriter came in and then started to shift the storyline around so the characters appeared different so what you ended up with was something that wasn't the original golden eye it wasn't the movie golden eye yeah but it was 
took that and spun a more modern take as if you'd kind of rebooted it for uh, Daniel Craig. Because one of the arguments was, in the, uh, as, as everything started to come together, was actually Piers Brosnan's uh, Bond exists in the GoldenEye movie. True. Yeah, true. Don't want uh, Daniel Craig to work in it. What if we took GoldenEye? Yes, I'm sort of telling you this story slightly out of sequence, but yeah. What if we took Daniel Craig's Bond and did GoldenEye again? Mm. And it was kind of one of those sort of things of actually a lot of the work that I'd done on Potter of breaking down plots and, and getting down to the essentials um, proved quite handy because there were certain things that we had to do. Mm. Because we have this situation. Uh, Trevelyan, who is the... Uh, um, Sean Bean character yep, yep. has to defect to a military power that's got a nuclear weapon that a thing, and it was like actually, no matter what we change around it, we probably have to be dealing with Russia. We do have to because it has to be a nuclear power. We were like at one point, it was like, could it be more severe? It's like, no, this mm. guy. And all those pieces had to slot together. Plus, uh, Mike spent a lot of time in the room with the. Uh, Hollywood scriptwriter who came in and was like writing all the dialogue around the game that we had formed, which had got had got you know amped up and turned up to beyond eleven to like thirteen with all those helicopters and stuff like that kind of thing. So we we got to the end of it and um, uh, yeah, it was uh, it was one of those kind of ones of yeah, that's done. Let's never go there again. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, and I, actually, one of the things I I um, Fortunate enough, I actually uh, took a two-week break out in the April of 2010. Um, I planned a, a holiday, sort of 18 months ahead kind of thing. When I actually turned up at Eurocom, it was like, that's what we're going to go. And it was a, an opportunity to uh, take uh, my family out to, to the West Coast of America. They'd never been to Vegas, never been to LA, never been to San Francisco. Yeah. I had the pleasure of visiting all of them multiple times with my job. Incredible places to visit. I wanted to take everybody out mm. there, so booked it in. And uh, one of the things that uh, Mike and I we've been married for 21 years by that point, and we'd always joked if we ever went to to Vegas, we're going to go get married by Elvis in the uh, chapel. So I'm, we're heading out there, and uh, my friend Alex from uh, Criterion, uh, his wife's American. He was over in the states at the time. He yeah. got into went. What are you doing? You're, you're over in the States. Can I come down and see you? I was like, okay, we're kind of <laughs> renewing our vows in Vegas. Come on down. Nice. So he came, he flew down to see us and uh, hung out, was my best man for, for our wedding. They did the whole Elvis thing. James Parrott's massive Elvis fans had a terrific time. It was hilarious. Anyway, we we're driving in the car and it was like, Simon, when are you coming back to us? I was like, well, I've got this golden eye thing to come back. So I'm like, um, when are you done? Give us a shout. I was like, well, you know, I'd also, you know, if you could move the, the uh, office a few hundred miles up, up north, I'd appreciate it. Well, you can work from home, I'm sure. Yeah. So I finished GoldenEye and uh, on the last day, and we were kind of told, right, you've basically had no holiday apart from this two weeks. And that was a, a bit of a thing because we, we were trying to go alpha around that time. And I was like, I am going out of this building for two weeks and coming back. Oh, yeah. And that was uh, that was further complicated because we were trapped in San Francisco for an extra five days by the volcano that oh, no. erupted in Iceland. Yeah, I remember. Um, I came back and uh, so we finished um, uh, finished Goldeneye. We were told, right, that's done. You guys get out of here for two weeks, and then you're coming back, and we're going to make it for the PlayStation and Xbox and convert and all this kind of <laughs> stuff. 
Um, first day off, I handed in my notice and uh, a few weeks later, I started back at Criterion working from home and working with the guys back at Criterion. So I then went back on there to work on Need for Speed Most Wanted. Yeah. Um, worked on the multiplayer team with uh, a lot of the guys from Paradise with Alex and Fiona and um, had a, a, an absolute blast driving cars and smashing stuff online and stuff working on, on uh, Need for Speed, which Good. almost brings us up to where I am now. But anyway. Brilliant. That's amazing. Okay. I, I appreciate it. That's really interesting, Simon. I mean, you've worked on some huge projects. Um, <laughs> they seem to get bigger over time, and, you know, it's amazing here. Well, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that was that was the thing. It was kind of the, was the shock to me. It's like you know, working on the Potters, it was 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 immense. And uh, say, I was just sort of like, I think I've been been working away for a long time. I'd like to mm. sleep my own bed. And uh, weirdly, the strange thing was, in the time that I'd been working away, I saw my kids more when I was just coming back at weekends than when I was working eight miles down the road and uh, and killing myself on on Bond. But oh, it was yeah. just one of those things that the 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 sort of expectations um, mm. were just astronomical and it was just like, you know, everybody throwing their heart and soul mm. into it um, for as long as possible and surviving on curry. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, it's incredible. Um, Simon, was there any games you worked on that never got finished, never got released? And if there is, is there one particularly Ooh. that you think, oh, I just wish that could have been finished. I think it would have yeah. been successful. Well, there, 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 yeah, I mean, there were uh, there, there have been things where you've kind of uh, put a load of stuff in it. Just you know, at some point or other, it uh, things change and, and you get thrown out. Yeah. Let's think. Um, I remember doing a let's see, oh, think. Um, there was a, there was a couple of three sort of little sort of fun platform games back during the core days that started work on, and then those kind of fell away yeah. and, and stuff. Nothing really stands out. There are a few projects that uh, Guy and I pitched during the time we were working together um, uh, towards my latter years in call, sort of like a, I did a, uh, at the t- actually, here's one. Um, at the time that everyone was buying a silicon graphics machine, Core bought a load of silicon graphics machines, and I had one of them. And I did some work for a good few months on a first-person shooter um, that was going to use... Uh, a lot of sort of like almost Doom-like tech built on the back of the stuff that uh, Mac had built for the, um, uh, the likes of uh, Thunderhawk on the um, Mega CD and the mm-hmm. PC races and stuff like that. We had that tech kicking around for the longest while. And so Guy and I had actually come up with a, a game called Secret Forces, which was um, kind of lots of genetic alien hybrid monsters kind of thing in uh sort of uh, Area 51 type facilities and stuff. And I remember cutting my teeth in 3D modeling on a massive silicon graphics workstation and doing kinematics and uh, all that kind of stuff on a load of weird sort of albino, weird kind of hybrid creatures and stuff like that. Quite good fun, Um, but uh, that never got out of the starting blocks. Um, The next thing was then from from that that kind of... uh, got me working on Shellshock, which was a tank game, which was the last thing I worked on core. And that was basically, we got to a certain point where I'd worked with um, various teams on stuff, wanted to get into 3D, and I was kind of uh, in between projects. And it was like, what, should, uh, what can we do with the BC Racers, Thunderhawk tech of the scaling sprites and the scrolling mm-hmm. floor and stuff? And I was like, well, 
one of the things that we could do is a tank game because it requires a flat floor. You can have loads and loads of sprites and stuff uh, and everything. So I spent a lot of time uh, on a silicon graphics building tanks and environments mm. and characters for this kind of crazy uh, thing which came out to be shell shock. Um, and that was one of those kind of ones that I, I remember working for, for months on that before we actually had any coders to come aboard and go, oh, we'll actually turn that again. Uh, so that was, uh, that was kind of what came out of, out of that one. That was literally a, we have an engine, what more can we get out mm. of it until we, we do? So um, that was the thing. And then, um, yeah, we, I suppose actually one, uh, a couple of the projects whilst I was working at Criterion, when I joined Criterion, we worked for a few months with the team on what would have been a sequel to Black, the um, oh yes, yeah. two shooter. Yep. Uh, and then what actually happened with that one, Burnout Paradise, was which was at that point I think was probably called Burnout Five, was in production. And what happened was was that we the two projects running at Criterion, and gradually. As Burnout 5 gained more momentum, the need for more resources came in. We'd lose a programmer wow. and an artist and maybe a designer until gradually there were like four or five in a room looking at one of them going, yeah, we're never going to see those people again, are we? <laughs> uh, so although I had a lot of fun working with Craig and uh, Sylvan and the guys there on, uh, on, on the sort of concept and the early sort of stages of, of Black 2 uh, uh, Shooter, um, that eventually closed, and I then moved over to work on Burnout Paradise with mm. everybody. Well, a great game, by the way. Burnout was awesome. Yeah, big, big fan. And of the it was game. terrific. The weird thing was, I think I was on. I, I um, that decision to 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 close the finish the close the Burnout Two team was actually uh, just before Christmas of that year. Um, so I went away for Christmas and I'd actually uh, talked to Paul Glancy yeah. as of games journalist from way back and now design producer and stuff. And, and I was going to join Paul on Burnout 5 in the new year. And um, I was moving over and I think it was actually also as uh, the Criterion team had moved from the original offices to the big facility, the big EA facility in the centre of Guildford. Um, and I kind of came back with the expectation. I'd been playing all of the burnouts, genning up on everything, and, and kind of like a, the um, on open world um, driving games at that yeah. point. I joined PG and worked with him on this stuff. And I came back, and I think within a day, Alex had come up and went, Fancy doing something on the Nintendo? I've got an idea. Okay. So, Nintendo DS. Ah. So, we actually had worked on a project myself. Uh, Jess Chubb and uh, Jill Warren, as was then, um, three of us got together and basically together a pitch for a Nintendo DS game based on Burnout. Mm. But not actually a driving game because the DS wasn't sort of thingy. It was an idea of a kind of WarioWare style minigame sort of thing. Wow. Um, so it was you know, kind of one of those kind of things. And it's a, a practice that me and Alex uh, have kind of done before, which is like, right, how many ideas do you have? Well, I've got 10. I can spin the wheels to do a star. I can hit the traffic lights, one, two, three, to count you in. I can zip past the traffic light, you know, mm. uh, zip through the speed camera, by, you know, all those kind of fast reaction games. Right, we've got 10. Can you make it 50? Yeah. <laughs> can you make it 150? Can you make it 250? So we came up with <laughs> 250 little tiny burnout themed Smashing, smashing the window out of a car, mm. you know, slashing tires, 
all that kind of stuff, um, ideas for mini games, micro games actually, yeah. and uh, put together a pitch for a uh, pitch around that, which we actually ended up um, pitching to uh, Mr. Riccatello, who was the head of EA at the time, thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, so we actually then went in and, and actually we, we spent a couple of trips to Japan because we were researching uh, Nintendo stuff and working with the Japanese EA. They were always in a situation where they were kind of getting Western games and it's like, well, what can we do to help mm. you guys to, to, to ca- uh, capture on this? I had a tremendous experience. Um, actually, did a, did a trip where we ended up going from Japan to Vancouver to LA over three weeks and did all sorts of, had, had a tremendous experience learning how to pitch games and, and doing all this stuff. And we put together a, a very small team to, to prove it out. And uh, we built probably, oh, let's think, I was about sort of 15 of the micro games. Mm. And it was pretty good fun. One of the things that we discovered was the fact that um, we wanted to put too much gameplay into individual game. Yeah. It kind of like the heritage, the Alex and the games at Criterion put in. They're all about scoring and beating your score and depth score, stuff mm. like that. What we were finding was it was this real, and also they're really highly polished, high, high caliber games. And so the thing is, with the micro game idea, you're really kind of putting together things that you really need to be able to implement in two hours, throw away, and they've got, you know, they're just an interaction and you're done. And so what we came to the conclusion was, although we created this kind of thing, you know, we've got kind of like a, a small version of Spy Hunter in there where you could get more points and you could do all this kind of we, we, we were actually creating mini games rather than micro games and the whole thing really relied on that rapid fire what do I do next mm. kind of thing mm. so we kind of got to a certain point where the, where the project with the prototype that we got and everything like that would have taken us about five years to make what we were trying to make yeah. it was like this is kind of <laughs> we're, we're struggling we'll, we'll end up making the most costly DS product ever mm. It, uh, contemplating looking at um, um, success at the yeah, other Wii U, wouldn't it? Uh, kind of thing. We started looking into that and thought we'd take that idea along. And then it was kind of like this sort of situation that Burnout Paradise had been out and it was moving into its, its year of DLC. Yeah. Where Alex um, Fiona had the idea of let's support the game beyond launch and really kind of, you know, kind of drop, uh, experiment with developing out the game, experimenting with ideas, but providing it as uh, new content. So the idea of, okay, what else game, what other game modes can we provide? Um, can we bring uh, bikes to it? What kind of different vehicles can we do? How can we extend the game? And actually kind of creating a large amount of, uh, of free DLC along with later some paid DLC. Yeah, and uh, uh, one day was, was, I was sitting at my desk, and uh, uh, we uh, Alex came in and went, "Look, I think we're just going to have to knock uh, yeah, the DS game on the head." And we're like, "Yeah, fine, that's okay. We've had an amazing experience mm. working on it. Learned an awful lot. What do you know about my, uh, making websites? Well, I've got my own. I, I kind of made my own, but yeah, I can take that over. So what then happened was, as um, or the Year of Paradise, it was known myself and uh, Jeremy Chubb, 
uh, jumped in, uh, ended up uh, building out the website, working on um, sort of a live page that was introduced to Burnout Paradise, which was kind of like an event type. Mm. And then ended up, one of the other things we wanted to do was Alex had the idea of supporting um, the game with a podcast. Wow. So the guys had been doing sort of like bits of uh, podcasts and all this. Like he was like, "Why don't you try some video?" So we did uh, um, did our first uh, first attempt, which was forty five min- uh, minutes of six of us crammed together, sweating in a room, looking very <laughs> uncomfortable. And it was like, "Well, we can put this out, but it looked rubbish." Yeah. Remember, tis was remember Saturday morning TV. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. So then, what uh, Jez and I did was we became kind of like video presenters and produced a, a series called Crash TV, which ran kind of almost weekly for uh, that time of the year of paradise, talking about what was coming in with the, with the game, you know, kind of thing and stuff like that. So it was just, uh, I ended up video editing, presenting this video podcast, slamming stuff up onto YouTube, uh, doing all sorts of social media stuff. And it was just, you know, yeah. another thing to get involved in and support the team. So I kind of, Worked on burnout, but sort of peripherally and in a support sort of uh, fashion, um, all the all the way through that one kind of thing, oh, and then nice. yeah, uh, and uh, say the jumping in point there was games that never quite made it. So that was uh, yeah, say the the DS version <laughs> of burnout as a mini game. Oh, it's a shame. It does sound pretty interesting. <laughs> it was it was tremendous fun to work on and and a heck of an experience. And that's kind of the thing mm. is is that there's a weird thing about working in the games industry um, is for, you know, it's, it's the time that you have working with the people that you have on the, on the game that you're making. When it goes out the door, it's, usually, it's, it's, it's that sort of thing. If you were doing it as a Hollywood movie, everybody would be going, well, go final, and everybody punches the yeah. air. But actually what happens is, is that there's this slow decline. As more and more people are told, yeah, um, you're not allowed to touch the project anymore. We can't make any more changes because that will make more bugs. So yeah. it kind of dwindles and people start moving away towards the end until it goes down to that kind of few core legendary programmers who go, yeah, and we've made the final build and it's been submitted mm. to Sony to put out the door. And now we've got the, the Taiwanese version to do. Oh, and then the Mexican version, um, there's, they have a different controller with an extra Y button. So mm. we've kind of done support. Oh, there was a bit of misspelling in German. We've corrected the word twonk or something like that. <laughs> yeah. So it kind of just peters out. Um, so there isn't that kind of thing. And and um, and so when you're done with the game, you're like, okay, done that. Oh. What's next? Because the weird thing is, and this is one of the ones actually why I never, ever want to work on a Batman game or a Star Wars game, because those two things, Batman and Star Wars, really, really kind of close to my heart. I wouldn't want to wreck it by spending 18 months or two years uh. making a broken game that represents that thing. Because one of the things is that yeah, I, I must admit, kind of like as much as I've loved Potter, I've loved Monty Python, I've loved James Bond. Mm. Don't want to go anywhere near them, having having kind of worked on them. Mm. Uh, I, I'm, I've had my fill, thank you very much, and walked away. Um, but yeah, there is that sort of thing of uh, when we're working on a game. You're kind of looking at it, and you're always looking for the things that are busted in it, yeah. you know, sort of thing. And I always kind of think to myself, you know, I wonder what it's like to be George Lucas working on Star Wars. Well, here's Armored Best walking around in a funny suit against a green screen, and 
that spaceship doesn't look like, it looks like a box at the moment. Mm. And we haven't got the special effects for this. That isn't very good. That's the only take we've got to do it. And so you're spending all the time poking holes in what you've made. So when it gets to the end and it's all polished and the rough edges, you can only see the things that you never managed to get into, but the experiences of the things that were broken. Whilst looking at a backdrop of finished games by everybody else in the world that come out looking pristine and amazing. (laughs) And it was always one of the ones I always remember, um, and I stopped reading things like Edge back in the uh, late 90s, because I'd open up and there's these glorious kind of like pieces where you've got teams going, and here's our wonderful, amazing kind of artwork of these games that are coming out. And you go, yeah, if only ours actually had polygons on screen and didn't have massive tears and worked at the frame rate and all this <laughs> kind of stuff. But of course, you know, those teams have already gone through that for two years and you're only ever seeing the end product. Whereas yeah. we are looking at it and you're going, it's all broken. It's never going to work. It's never going to be <laughs> underwater, like that kind of thing. And stuff. So for me, it is the um, it's actually you know it's the creative process of, of making things and, and doing stuff and reminding yourself how incredible it is to be making things with what is cutting edge technology mm. all the way through and the people that you you work with, the experiences you have, you know, sort of thing uh, and stuff um, more than it is the sort of finished project because you kind of get to the end of it like oh, yeah, <laughs> oh, you know, so. <laughs> And stuff and, and you know kind of that's 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 the the sort of wacky side to it I'm gonna say sometimes with projects where you go okay we've made this thing and it didn't quite work out there's probably a good reason you know sort mm. of like with the the DS game it's like well we could have killed ourselves for another two years and it could have gone out to a whimper and mm. it's like well actually we then moved on did the podcast and then I ended up doing other things and then came back to work on well, worked on golden I worked on Need for speed uh, and stuff um, I didn't say the, the other one that uh, I, the, the latter time I spent at Criterion was working on the game that the guys pitched at E3 a few years ago, which was a big adventure game, which was kind of like an open world multiplayer online where you could wingsuit, uh, dune buggy, crop duster plane, yeah. skydive, boat, jet boat and everything like that kind of thing, working in unity with the team uh, on that one kind of thing. We left um, midway through that was that was still in sort of early concept I carried on with it took it clearly uh, presented it to the E3 and then they moved on to support Star Wars stuff and as far as I know that was the end of, end of that project kind of thing but that was uh, that was good fun to work on whilst it was was there and it is that kind of thing that there are some sometimes with the things that don't work or don't get finished still take the knowledge that you did or the experiences or sort of like that kind of thing. Um, because the more times that you fail, you, there are, are, you know, there are, there are, and, and if you can fail early, then that's something you've learned that you can bank and never do again yeah. to find the right route to making something that you really want to make. So, ah, there you go. Good, that's a really good answer. Yeah. I really like, I really like hearing about the human side as well, like about the, you know, camaraderie of working with workers and, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It, it, it is all about the people that you, you know, you work with because, you know, it, it has been over over the years. I mean, the, the weird thing was the early days, I think the, the, the latest that uh, uh, we ever worked on something like Rick Dangerous was maybe a couple of nights till half past eight yeah. at night or something like that. And then as Core became a publisher and the stakes came higher and everything, the amount of extra hours you were doing, working weekends, working bank holidays, working overnight, working through the night, just kept on mm. going up. Yeah. Stuff. 
Um, and actually, one of the things I am grateful for was when, when I actually moved away and started working up at Stockton on Tees, working down at Chertsey and Guildford with, with the guys. What that actually afforded me was I could absolutely work non-stop from Monday morning all the way through to Friday night, but knew that for uh, for the weekend I could get away, be yeah. 100, 200 miles away from where I worked, have a weekend where I was totally back to settle and go back to it, which made, it, uh, made, made say, going back to uh, Goldeneye, where we were seven days a week, 12 <laughs> hours a day, non-stop for, for nine months was just like, okay, you know, sort of thing. But yeah, you really are, I mean, you're not digging ditches, you're not, you know, kind of like fighting a war, but yeah. there is a there is a lot of the of the. It, I always um, the one that I always come back to is it's like working at the ice cream factory. Okay. You turn up, you turn up with a spoon and you love ice cream and you keep digging into the ice cream. And I really like ice cream. I keep on going and all this kind of stuff. But unless you can go outside and have a glass of water. And somebody keeps on bringing in gallons more Chunky Monkey and they're going, you like ice cream, keep on eating it. There's <laughs> a certain point where you start getting, you know, kind of a, a brain freeze and you're like, I, I, I can't eat anymore, mm. you know, sort of thing. And then somebody comes in and goes, oh, there's a barrel of blueberry and some raspberry ripple. Keep on eating. And it's that kind of thing where you go, I am working on the, you know, on amazing properties, the most cutting edge kind of like technology mm. with a bunch of really talented, creative people. We're working against, you know, High deadlines, but with massive budgets to, uh, to do to do things. But can I just take a breath yeah, for air, yeah. you know, yeah. sort of thing? And it is that sort of thing, you know, kind of kind of thing. And it's sort of it's it's more that. But to say it's not digging ditches, it's not not kind of saving lives, it's not curing cancer or whatever. What you do have is the privilege of entertaining people mm. and you know and and and, and um, giving people experiences, creating things which are going to engage people that you've never met all the way around the world. Mm. And that's an amazing thing. But it can be exhausting at times. And it is that sort of thing is even now kind of watching um, the current state of, of the games industry and social media like that, where they're talking about, you know, even crunch now. It is that sort of trying to get uh, for, for everyone in the industry that healthy balance where yeah. you go, yes, you have got the privilege of working in this amazing industry. But if you burn people out, they're no good to you because they become resentful or they just become so tired that the work ultimately suffers, yeah. you know, sort of thing and, and stuff like that. And it is that, that you know, kind of it, it, that is the sort of thing. But there are companies out there that have a more responsible uh, sort of attitude. And that kind of probably leads us into, into uh, where, where we're at at 3 Hill. Good stuff. I mean, yeah, I, you know, I, I totally agree, Simon. I mean, obviously, it must be great working on these great games, but... If, if you keep pushing and keep pushing, I mean, they said Red Dead Redemption Two. I think they almost boasted Rockstar that some people work in yeah. through the night, you know, Absolutely, ridiculous yeah. hours, and it's not really a boast. I don't think it's more. I don't know. It just seemed didn't sit well with a lot of people, actually. No, well, I say it is one of those kind of ones of there is the um, there's having that sort of sensible attitude to the scope of your game, yeah. you know, sort of thing. Yeah, you kind of take, you know, when you look at uh, the way movies are made, where they're hitting a particular deadline, and, and say a lot of, uh, of games where there is a fixed deadline point, there are good things about that fixed deadlines and bad things. Mm. Good thing is, is that when you, when say we were working on Potter, where we had our fixed deadlines of it has to come out in time with the uh, movie, yeah. you know that no matter how much you push and you, you go, that end point isn't going to, to move. 
So you know that it's going to end and you're going to have a break after that. Mm. And also, actually, I was work- I remember working with Colin Robinson, who was the uh, uh, head of all the Potter stuff, and he had a, an attitude, which I thought was a very good one, uh, um, which was all the way through this project, he said, I am going to ask you for all sorts of things. And I will say, please put them on the list, make it a priority, not a high priority. Mm. You may end this, ga- this game with a thousand things on the list, but if we can do 999 of them by the end of it, fantastic. If we can't, it doesn't matter. But please take them seriously and give them a priority. Yeah. And so that's kind of how he works. And he was that sort of thing where he's like, I've seen this. We need to add much more of mm. this into the game. That's a priority. Well, is it a higher priority than the other thing that you said yesterday? Mm. No, it is. Okay. And so managing that and, and acknowledging the fact that you had to, had to have this cutting off point. Um, one of the things that I remember doing and learning mm very early on, particularly on Asterix, was building the game design so you can cut big chunks out of it and nobody ever notice. Um, with the planning for Asterix, I had a m- many more levels in my core, in, my, in, my, um, uh, uh, in, in the game. But what I've done is I actually constructed a quest thread which ran through and then you had numerous kind of loops that added in... Um, extra levels mm. so when we first pitched to sega here we are here are 27 levels blah 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 blah. blah. eventually there was a certain point in the project where they said seeing how long it takes for doing levels we ain't going to be able to shift the end date what can you do and i was like this is easy here's a diagram i preferred earlier and what we what i've done was have uh, steph and rich um basically prioritize the essential levels yeah we deprioritized all the ones that were peripheral to the story. So we knew that if we only ever built the backbone of it, that was good enough. So in, a, in an instant, I could cut a big chunk out of the game. Um, yeah. On Shadow Man, we had a similar situation where uh, the guys from Acclaim came in and went, ooh, you're going to have to move this one in. What mm. can you do? And I was kind of sat there. I was like, if you cut this piece out, take that off. We can remove a serial killer there, mm. do such and such, whatever. And that level's not being built, so it won't exist. And suddenly we'd taken six months off the project. And it was like, wow. Yeah. So it's kind of bearing that in, in mind and, and, and scope to, to fit what eventually happens kind of thing. And, and so those things kind of, you know, and it is just sort of uh, being smart about the way you construct that, mm. uh, that can help you. And I say there is the other thing of it, it, it. A lot of it does come down to who's running the team, the chemistry you've got, the way that people view it, is, you know, whether everything has to go in the game before the end or whether, you know, you're constantly reviewing your scope and going, what what is the stuff that you can deliver to quality and time without killing everybody, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a, a funny old thing. And I say it is that kind of thing of there is a, there is a yeah, there is a, a privilege to working in this amazing industry, but there are, you know, situations where, Folks, good nature can be put upon, mm. and you know, it is trying to. You know, we are, you know, in 2018 now. Surely we're in, um, we're in the in the the world of the, the mega project. Surely there has to be a sustainable way to, to, to make games. Have the tools, we have the technology. Mm. People want to work on it. Um, so yeah, good stuff. Um, got a bit of a random question now, Simon. Sure. <laughs> if if you could be transported into any of your video games you've ever worked on, you could kind of live in that made-up world for a day, which game yeah. would you choose? 
That's a good one. I mean, say, the problem with video game worlds is they're, they're kind of normally kind of post-apocalyptic hellscapes, right. <laughs> uh, you know, where you're probably going to get, you know, kind of shot, abducted and probed or run over. <laughs> yeah. um, I guess, actually, probably the nicest place to hang out would probably be Burnout Paradise, Paradise City, because yeah. it's got a beach, it's got the mountains, there's, you know... The, there's not that much traffic on the road. That's and you true, can find like a lunatic. <laughs> yeah. And even if you're right off the car, you get a brand new shiny one. That's uh, a great so answer. I, you know, <laughs> and actually, you know, kind of as, a, as an online place to hang out, uh, it, it, it's good. So I would, I would think of, think of that because I, 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 you know, so go, going back to, you know, sort of like Rick Dangerous, can you imagine Ooh. you'd be on anxiety meds in a second if everything, yeah. every short move you did was a blow dart to your head, <laughs> you know, sort of thing or, yeah. So yeah, I, I prob- I'd probably say yeah, there's a, um, a Paradise City probably would be, be, uh, be the place because yeah, you know, sort of thing. Not that many, uh, not, not much crime. I'd say if you write off your car, you get a new one. I, I, I could be into that, and it's sunny all the time. So yeah, that sounds good to me. Sounds good to me. Um, penultimate question then, really, before we wrap things up. What projects are you working on? Is there any more games you're working on at the moment? Can oh. you share? Yeah. That so um, I'm working on Dangerous Driving at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, nearly. Five years ago, uh, Alex and that's five years, I think it is. Yeah, um, Alex and Fiona left Electronic Arts um, after running Criterion for many years and decided they wanted to set up a small, uh, sustainable development company. And I was one of the uh, guys that uh, was uh, was asked to, to come along and, cool. and join them. Um, so uh, we've got a small office down in Hampshire. In a really nice, uh, nice kind of quiet part of the part of the country, um, there are seven of us. Uh, those six guys work down there. I work remotely from home and have done for the past five years. Uh, we're working in Unreal, uh, building all sorts of uh, cool stuff. And we've we sort of over a time we uh, built a wild kind of like physics-based golf game called Dangerous Golf. We I experimented with uh, VR for PlayStation VR, uh, Oculus Rift, and um, the other one that slips my mind right now, oh, HTC Vive, uh, doing a gun game uh, in, in VR. Yeah. And then we've just gone and shipped uh, our last two games, Danger Zone and Danger Zone 2, which are both car games where you're creating the biggest possible crash based upon everything that uh, we learned from the original Burnout Crash. Of course. Of course. Uh, game modes. We're now building Dangerous Driving, uh, which uh, we're hoping we to release um, very early next year. Mm. Um, it is an um, absolute hell for leather, driving super fast uh, in high-speed vehicles across dangerous roads, doing takedowns and battling and all of that kind of stuff that has it has its heart in the original Burnout. Oh, that sounds brilliant. Alex Fiona and the, and the guys have, have got. And um, what I'm doing at the moment, well, I'll say I, I've, uh, since I've been working for Three Fields, I've been doing a lot of um, front end and HUD artwork um, and stuff and getting knee deep in uh, Unreal's uh, presentation system, mm-hmm. doing all the animation and graphics for that, as well as working uh, in Unreal on building the levels. At the moment, uh, I'm building uh, a lot of the environments out with uh, Paul Philpott, who's our other environment artist, and we're building these huge kind of uh, um, open landscape with a crisscross with lots and lots of uh, uh, high-speed roads with massive drift curves in them. And just, um, well, it, it's one of those kind of things where 
I'm sitting here in front of a big 4K screen uh, with amazing tools, the Unreal suite of tools just get better and better and better. I'm able to manipulate photoreal landscapes, plant trees, adjust roads and everything. And, and you know, it, it's quite um, astonishing how with today's tools between seven of us, we can do the work of maybe our team, mm. you know, years ago. Um, and yeah, that's kind of like where, where we're at at the moment. So past, past few months for me have been very much deep into, into world building and manipulating terrain, laying down roads, painting in all sorts of things. But when you're sitting there looking at it and going, you know what? I think it needs more trees and bushes. Yeah. You're thinking just the leaf on one of these things is actually bigger than the first game I ever wrote. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it's insane. Yeah. All real time lighting. You know, sort of thing. All real physics brought to us, to us by the Unreal Engine. High detailed assets, wheels coming off, things blowing up, uh, and everything. And it, it's fantastic. And uh, you know, all credit to Alex and Piano when they they set up Three Fields. It was like, what we want to do is get back to making games because those guys have been steering a massive super tanker of of a of a you know in house studio for EA for mm. years as, as Criterion. And it's like, what can we do? with great tools because they're all free now, mm. accessible, and a small core team of people. Uh, so, yeah, it's uh, uh, me, uh, me, Alex Fiona, Paul, uh, Phil, Ben, and, uh, and Alex Veal, all work, uh, working on um, really fun games. And what we want to try and do is to, um, the, other, the other sort of approach has been, rather than go away and build one massive game over the periods of two and a half years and then put it out and cross your fingers and hope that people notice it is to actually have an approach of building small games mm. that are at a, a lower price point that just designed to be really good fun, full of lots of high scores and competition. Mm. Can I beat your score? That kind of stuff. Lots of depth of, depth of scoring and build upon that. So with um, Danger Zone, it was a return to cars um, what we did was um, had a, a very modular system for, for building our, our environments, which are all sort of uh, within a uh, crash test scenario. Mm. Uh, that allowed us to do all sorts of things, smashing cars, um, trucks with payloads on. I remember that was trucks with payloads on was something that whilst we were working on um, Burnout Paradise, with, well, the team were working on Burnout Paradise, and then on the need for speeds afterwards, doing Trucks with physics payloads that spilled and all that lot was always a thing that, and articulated one. The thing that was on the board that slowly got pushed away, slowly yeah. got pushed away. In the first one in Danger, Danger Zone 1, the guys managed to get, you know, kind of trucks spilling payloads all over. <laughs> Danger Zone 2, we moved on to real outside roads and locations, mm. articulated lorries that jackknife, big things flying around the road of the thing, and we've learned how to. Uh, you know, kind of build up on the gameplay of the first one to do open roads, to do, you know, big broad eyes and build landscapes and stuff. So moving into to dangerous driving where the whole thing is about high speed, battling one another, you know, kind of thing, and and, and, and taking each other down in, in traffic. Um, that's kind of like that, our next thing, and we're, we're kind of gunning for, uh, for, uh, for doing that. Um, at the moment, kind of, if... Uh, Anybody wants to find uh, find out more, I think it's uh, on Twitter. Well, I say follow Three Fields uh, on Twitter. All the stuff's going. We've got a mailing list where we're putting out lots and lots of behind the scenes stuff 
uh, at the moment uh, and stuff we're building. We're going to have a, an open day um, in uh, December, so we're going to get a load of fans in to nice. uh, get, get a, play the uh, play the game, uh, test it out. We're building a line at the moment and everything. Multiple game modes are going week uh, and stuff. So all those kind of classics of, uh, uh, that, that make it just more than racing. And uh, yeah, just having an absolute blast, you know, sort of thing. And, and uh, yeah, just you know, hoping that more the more fans that can can support our games mean that we keep going longer, or we can add more features and stuff like that. But it's been so great to, within the space of like four and a bit years, to have got four games nearly five out. Whereas that would be yeah. for you know for some teams maybe games yeah. at a push yeah. for the bigger game can be five games. You know, and that's an awful long time. So it's really good to be back mm. to that fast turnaround, um, just simply from the fact that you learn so much. Mm. So you know, kind of um, coming on to uh, dangerous golf as I did, it was like I don't know anything about making front ends in Unreal. We make one, you know, kind of thing, and within uh, you know, sort of like nine months, you're moving on to the next game, making a, a, a front end in, in VR, yeah. and then you. On to the next one, and you're constantly learning, and there is that sort of thing. I, I do remember it on the Potters. Um, there is that sort of thing where you go, "Hang on a minute, you know, how do we kick off a project? It's so long since we last did it. <laughs> yeah. I can't remember the steps that we took, you know, kind of thing." So actually, having this kind of rapid turnaround, it's much more like mm. um, those very, very early days. And um, because there's so so few of us. Um, there's no meetings, there's no PowerPoints, yeah. there's, you know, kind of thing. And um, the, the sort of the, the way that uh, Alex and Fiona have been managing the project, it's all about, well, what, you know, kind of setting the deadlines based on what we can achieve yeah. and the release dates on what we can achieve rather than trying to cram more features and killing ourselves doing it. You know, sort of thing. So um, that's been uh, one arm of it. And then the other arm of that has been, um, I I um, do a lot of uh, uh, freelance art now. Mm. I've been talked about way back. Um, I've, I've started getting into um, making replica props and stuff like that kind of thing. Been learning how to run a three D printer and and, and uh, do various different sort of prop commissions. And then also um, I've been doing a lot of um, freelance illustrations and stuff like that. Uh, one of which actually this past year I've been doing. Um, for a company called Pico Interactive, we're out in uh, Texas, and what they're doing is reissues of classic retro games uh, for new platforms or just or, or, or reissues and stuff. Yeah. So actually, I've got coming up a load of cover art and uh, manuals and things like that that I've helped those guys out with, and that's been really good fun going back to um, classic games of you know sort of like the Mega Drive SNES era yeah, yeah. and. Uh, reinterpreting the covers for them and stuff like that. And that's kind of thrown me a lot of uh, interesting artistic challenges. Um, the way I got into that was I, um, Eli, who runs Pico, got in touch with me ooh, and 18 months ago, I guess it was, and said, oh, um, we're, we're, uh, we've bought the rights to your game Switchblade, mm. Gremlin, mm. and uh, what we're going to do is we're going to do a, uh, a reissue of it on one of the platforms. I forget now. It escapes my mind. Um, do you have any sort of like work in progress sketches or anything like that kind of thing that we could include in the manual. I was like, well, actually, yes, I have. Good. <laughs> the original artwork that I'd, I'd drawn and I'd sort of kept scans of and stuff like this kind of thing. And I sort of said, you know, I'd be only too happy to, you know, if you wanted to, 
um, commission a, a new cover for Swiftblade. Brilliant. You know, like, but I was like, yeah. So I did a, a, a new cover, Hero and one of the cyber snakes from it, taking all that I've learned about painting and stuff like that kind of thing uh, many years since and, and did a cover for that. And uh, Eli's been coming back and gone, hey, can you do me uh, be another? So I've kind of been reinterpreting kind of classic uh, old, old, old school um, uh, games with a sort of a, a modern sort of painterly sort of twist and been sort of adapting my, my style. So you can, there's one which uh, I've coming uh, out soon, which was kind of like, can you do it, but in a Streets of Rage style? Mm. So it's trying to get that sort of, uh, that feel of those, those um, that sort of Mega Drive era oil painting. But of course, I'm, I'm working with digital. Um, so those, a lot of those are going to come online in the next month. So if anybody's following me on Twitter, I'll be, uh, tweeting those out, I'm really quite keen. I've, I've posted a few little sneak peeks of little bits and pieces. Mm. But I uh, want to respect <laughs> the fact that uh, they're not out yet, but I'll, I'll share that up. So oh, that's nice. been really good because it's a, another way to 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 improve and uh, you know kind of uh, do stuff. And I think that's kind of one of the things. Like looking back at kind of my career of doing things, it's always what can I do with the tools that are here? How can I make more things? How can I do things? And, and just being curious and wanting to 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 uh, to keep going and, and you know kind of uh, and looking at it and going yeah there's never been a better time to make games because the tools are here the you know the the, the um, technology's here to do things that would absolutely if I'd gone back to my 16 year old self sat at the BBC Micro and said you know what this is a you know this is a still shot of a real-time game that you're working in and you've got, you know, a car blazing along a, a, a tropical island highway, there's you know, a sea to the horizon, sun bleaching into the into the lens, lens flare, grass moving, palms swaying and everything like that. I had it a fallen off. No yeah. way could you conceive of it. And it is that kind of thing of, there's not many days that, uh, particularly Alex and I, will exchange an email going, you can't actually believe that we're making stuff with this kind of tech that looks like this. Um, and that's quite a uh, quite a, a privilege to, to still be going and doing things and finding new things as well in ways of, uh, of creating stuff. So, cool. Oh, Simon, it's been a real, I mean, just hearing your stories and your, your career has been absolutely a real privilege. And I do actually really mean that. It's, uh, you know, you, it's, I think you're an inspiration for anyone that wants to get into the industry and, it almost sounds like your career's come almost full circle, not in a rude way, but yes. coming back oh, yeah, to the absolutely. Yeah, yeah, this is it's very, very true. Um, this is one of those things that I'm back to where mm. I think I should be, but I appreciate it now. Um, one of the things I have always sort of thought is if you at a at a point in your life you can go, yeah, there was some horrible stuff because I'm not, not, you know, I have met some vile people, <laughs> greedy people, some very some people with some very very unpleasant sides to them over the years yeah. and had to deal with them and have been been very stressful and have coped with a lot of kind of anxiety and trauma as you know the pressure mm. of you've got to do these things takes bear and you and and there are certain times where people have power over you and you don't realize how much they they influence you and it is insidious uh, and stuff like that kind of thing. So my heart goes out to anybody who's in the industry working all this crunch and feeling the pressure of it, you know, sort of thing. But the 
point is, if you can get to a point and you can look back and you go, yeah, okay, there was some horrible stuff, mm. but at the place I am now, everything's cool. Yeah. I'm really enjoying it, and I, I appreciate it for the stuff that I've mm. gone through because that made me the person that appreciates it now. Mm. Yeah, you know, sort of thing, and do it. And and the other one as well is is kind of just get on and do it. As I said right at the very start mm. of this, you know, the tools are mm. free. They're mm. out there. There are more platforms. There are more machines that are so capable in everybody's hands. Everybody is a gamer. If it's kind of your mum playing, you know, kind of some word puzzle on a phone mm. to somebody, you know, kind of uh, playing it on a tablet yeah. to sitting there in, in virtual reality. God, I'm so excited about Oculus Quest. I <laughs> tell you, uh, you know, sort of thing, down to high-end monster PC, water-cooled, 4K display, yeah. wraparound, Dolby Atmos and all this kind of thing. This huge breadth mm. of interactive playgrounds that allow you to experience, you know, kind of all of these fantasies or create your own and say, hey, hey to the world, come and, come and live in my world for a little bit. Let me entertain you. We've never been in, a, in a, a time in history when this, you know, it's been more exciting. You know, sort of thing. It's easy to get blinded by the fact that there are one or two gigantic monster blockbuster games out there. Yeah. When I kind of, you know, I'm talking to guys that are taking old games and um, polishing them up and, and presenting them new. There is an audience out there mm. for that. There's an audience out for absolutely everything. Um, it, it's fantastic, you know, sort of thing. And it's ever growing. The tools are ever expanding. And what you can do is, is um, something new to be playing with. Sort of thing, and that, and that's that's joy of it, you know, sort of thing. Um, I guess, and say for, for for me, I started doing all of the jobs of you know art designer and program before they were the jobs. Had to work through my time at core as the games became more sophisticated. It was well, you're going to have to drop a discipline. Are you an artist, programmer, and design? Well, you've got better programmers than I am, but I can do the art and design, so I'll stick that. Mm. Go seaside. Are you an artist or a designer? Well, you've got better artists than me here, and you need a designer, so I'll work as a designer planner. Day on Shadow Man, that I'm sat there in my office designing something and scheduling it and realizing the point where, hang on a moment, if I design nothing, it won't cost us anything, was the day that I went, I need a project manager. Yeah. And so became a designer, worked on all the Potter games, did all sorts of crazy stuff throughout it, and came out the other side coming back to uh, Three Fields, what do you want to do? I'll do a bit of coding. I'll do a bit of logic. I'll do a bit of art. I'll do a bit of design. And that's and I'll, you know, throw something over. I'll give it my best shot. And that's kind of where I am now. And, and actually being at home with the technology that I've got, with the internet that allows me to talk to people all the way around the world and, you know, talk to people that have played my games that I've never met uh, and, and do all this kind of stuff. It's fantastic, you know, sort of thing. And, and say, you know, kind of, there are bad things about social media and stuff like that. But there is a fact that you know, meet you guys and, and and chat to you. And you know, there are groups out there that are you know preserving and loving games that I'd even forgotten I'd made. <laughs> um, it's terrific, you know, sort of thing. And, and may it ever continue. Yeah, you know, so, that's so what... I just love, love making stuff. Good uh, on you. 
I think that's a really good, that's a really good, lovely way to finish it, really. I've got a bit of a, we asked, I asked all my guests, sorry, I mean, I've, I've, I've asked yeah. you, I've asked you before on, the, on our text interview, but I just, you know, I'd love to hear, um, final question. If you could share a few drinks with a video game character, any character, who would you choose and why? Right. Um, I'd say, I remember the, the t- first time you asked it, and I, well, I would have to say, uh, Moxie, Mad Moxie from Borderlands. Yeah. <laughs> I really love Borderlands. Um, I, I love games that are open world, have lots of choice in them, and uh, with as few cutscenes as possible. Because I, I kind of like, I'm rubbish at playing games. So I, uh, the moment the game just gives me one choice and I can't get through that door, I have to give up. I've always been that. Ever since the boss on Phoenix, I could never get past it. Yeah. And so that sort of linear sort of track where you get stuck, this and the other. So I, I picked a Borderlands. The humour cracks me up. I love that world and everything like that kind of thing. So, yeah, that's the, the focus. And Moxie, well, smart lady, looks terrific. She's uh, She runs her own business. Uh, as you discover in, I think it's the pre-sequel, uh, she's also a very, very practical, can fix a spaceship and do everything. Really witty, holds her own in conversation. Uh Clearly knows how to uh, how to um, handle a drink in a bar and everything like that kind of thing. I think it'd be just an absolute right to hang out with her. Yeah, yeah, that's a great answer. <laughs> you know, brilliant. In fact, um, look, Simon, I leave you leave you tips. I know you're a really busy man, but just speaking to you in so much depth has been a, r- a real pleasure. So thank you again for your time. Welcome. Good stuff. You're very very welcome. No, you say it is one of those kind of things. Is it's uh, it's that the thing where you go on. Oh, I, mean, I don't know. I've got very much to say, and then you're like, "Well, yeah, I have been doing it for 30 years, and I have done this, I've done that, and I've been there while that happened and stuff." And you know, sort of hopefully uh, name-checking some of the folks that you know, kind of I, I work with because yeah. you know I've had the privilege of working with some amazing people over the over the over the years, um, you know, sort of thing. But no, it's it, it's it's great to meet you, and uh, wish you every success. Oh, thank you very much, Simon. I'll leave you to it then. Goodbye. Take care and uh, best to everybody listening on the podcast. And a uh, quick plug for me. You can follow me on Twitter at Simorph, S-I-M-O-R-P-H. I've also got a Simon Fipsar on Facebook. And uh, there's a, uh, my website, simonfips.com, where you can see stuff that I've worked. Uh, uh, I've got a sort of uh, game bibliography, with a lot of uh, behind the scenes bits and pieces there. Uh, the prop work that I'm doing, some photos and, and uh, some examples of some of the stuff that I make in my spare time and sell. And then a whole bunch of my artwork. And I've got an Instagram, which is SIM0RPH, because... That's how you're wrong. No, I agree. I've been on your website. It's really, it's really good. I recommend anyone that's listening to check it out. Definitely. So, sort of like, yeah, jump on. I'm, <laughs> I'm only too happy to, to uh, uh, meet folks that are out there that want to ask questions. And uh, yeah, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Good on you, Simon. Take care. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. We really hope you enjoyed it. If you want to get in touch regarding this week's episode or anything else, you can tweet us at Arcade Attack UK at Keith Barlow 82 and at Arcade underscore Adriano. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash UK. Please check out our website at arcadeattack.co.uk for lots of retro gaming goodness, interviews, reviews, features, top 10, etc. And you can also find all our previous podcasts there. Our podcasts are available to stream from the website and are available to download for free from Stitcher, Podbean and iTunes where you can also leave us a review and a rating, which we would really, really appreciate. So until next time, take care and we'll speak to you soon.